Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Are there enough partners to go around? And so the question really becomes, what does the supply and demand in the marriage market look like? What are people looking for? And the trick we used was we said that we might be able to know what people are looking for by finding their statistical twin in the data and asking who their statistical twin married. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, host of the show, and today I have the pleasure of hosting a conversation with one of our academic senior fellows, Professor Joseph Price. Good morning, Joseph. Thanks. Good morning, too. So would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? A couple of words? Sure. I'm Joe Price. I'm a professor of economics at Brigham Young University. I've been there about 15 years, and before that, I got my PhD at Cornell. And then my wife and I have seven kids and live in Springville, Utah. Right. And then there's a lot more that we could say about you. You are a research fellow in, I don't know, many places. You are a senior fellow here, of course, and you've been with the Austin Institute since the very beginning. One thing that I would like to mention is that you like to do a lot of research with students. And recently you were in the news for the longitudinal study on the flu and the pandemic flu. Would you just couple of words about that? Sure. Yeah. I love working with students. That's always been my real love is training up future scientists. And we were in a unique position to extract cause of death from the 1918 pandemic records. How, how come that you were in this? Uh, we've been doing some handwriting recognition okay. on Ohio death certificates. And because of that work we were doing, we were able to get death certificates for other states. And we were able to use that to study some of the interventions that were successful during the 1918 pandemic. Okay. So could you give us an example of like what would be the things that were relevant? Sure. Yeah. It was closing down public facilities. Mostly closures was kind of the strongest approach at the time. And we discovered there was a few cities that just decided to do nothing. And how and did it end? It didn't go well. I mean, their death rate was about twice as high as the other cities. And so that was a great project I worked on with Carver Coleman and Casey Buckles. And it was great to have kind of a, an undergraduate student be involved in relevant research for what we're going through today. Yeah, I remember reading this article that was reporting the experience of the students. So on behalf of the undergraduate students, we have a lot that come to the things at the Austin Institute. I would just say thank you. But also, Dr. Price is the father of seven, as you mentioned, and is also a very prolific author of papers and published. We have more than 50 articles published in some of the best journals of economics. So probably before we get into the weeds here, we should ask you if you ever sleep. Yeah, I have to sleep eight hours every night. So I actually think people think that cutting sleep might be the way to productivity. It's never been my strategy. Wow. So now that we're all humbled and, you know, ask ourselves, why is it that we get to get to the same result? I, I don't know. It just makes me think, you know, the fact that you had seven children, as we were talking before, you mentioned that you married young and... I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Professor Ignera's models of marriage, his idea of, you know, the capstone marriage or the foundation marriage, arguing that the foundation one is actually the one that works. And yeah, you seem to be living evidence that he is right on that. Yeah, I mean, Mark and I had a conversation about this at lunch a long time ago. And I said, one of the things I've been so grateful for is that my wife and I grew rich together. Because when we married each other, we were both college students. We were very poor. Like, actually, I look back on my apartment that we lived in when we first got married, and it makes everything that we've experienced since then be pretty amazing. And so I think of, like, where we live now, and it feels like such a blessing. 
Whereas I think if we'd come into marriage, maybe fully formed, we wouldn't have like been able to grow together quite as much. So is this a suggestion you also give to, you know, the undergraduates you meet, the children you have? It's like I definitely say uh, college is a fantastic time to think about who you want to marry because there's lots of free activities you can go to. There's lots of people you can interact with. I just felt like college was just a really neat experience for my wife and I, both to be with each other and also, you know, start our family. Wonderful. And I think this really gets us in the reason I asked you if you were willing to have a podcast was about, well, first of all, you're here in person because we invited you to lead a seminar on time between family and professional careers and basically trying to, you know, to show whether it is true or not that we need to make a choice in order to have one of the two successful. And I think the answer again, you know, is implied in your life. So that's the reason you're here. But then the topic that we wanted to discuss today is one of the articles you recently wrote, I think it was 2019, Mismatches in the Marriage Market. And before I say anything that could just, how could I phrase it? You know, I could say some things about this article that just put me on the spot, but I would say that you basically argue from an economics perspective, the reason why highly educated women of a certain age are going to have a very hard time finding a husband. So could you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah. So this was work with Dan Lichter at Cornell and Jeff Swigert, who's at Southern Utah University now, but was at Cornell at the time. He was one of my BYU students that went on to get a PhD at Cornell. And really the question was, is there enough, are there enough partners to go around? And so the question really becomes, what does the supply and demand in the marriage market look like? What are people looking for? And the trick we used was we said that we might be able to know what people are looking for by finding their statistical twin in the data and asking who their statistical twin married. Okay, now I read the article, so I know what you mean by statistical twin, but let's assume I did not read the article as most of our audience. Explain a little better what you actually did in this experiment, which I was happy to see that this article proves that women are not just, you know, picky, as some critics say. So please explain to a non-statistically familiar Sure, yeah. So my statistical twin is just someone who looks like me on paper. So someone who's the same race, the same age, living in the same place, same education level, same income. So basically with all the data we have in the census, in the American Community Survey, we just say, can I find someone that looks like me on paper? And then see who this person married? Yep. And then we call that person that they married my synthetic spouse. So the word synthetic is a little weird, but it's basically like our best guess at who I'm looking for, the kind of characteristics that I'm looking for. Who would you marry if you could pick? Yes, that's right. If you could pick for real, who would you marry? Okay. So this is not incredible thing. It's not what women dream of. It's exactly what they actually married in their statistical twin. Sure. And, and, you know, the data is leaving out a lot of things like chemistry and beauty and personality and humor, which we don't have in the American Community Survey, but at least for those characteristics that we have in this large nationally representative data set, we can think about what statistical twins look like. Okay. So what did you find? So we basically identify your synthetic spouse. So it's the person we think you're going to marry if you marry. And we think of that as the demand. So that's what people are looking for. And then we go and look among the unmarried population and we say, does this person exist? And so we basically know what people are looking for and we know what exists. And we just say, are there any mismatches in this market? So one thing we know is that there's a lot of people looking for a college educated spouse. 
people meaning women? Or? Yeah, women or men on both sides. You can okay. say like, okay, like there's a lot of women. Let's, let's talk about women because that's probably the one that's the most concerned about. I agree. Yeah. So <laughs> we say, okay, what? there's this set of women that are, are looking for a spouse and are, this is our best guess of what they're looking for. And we could say that like many of them are looking for a man with a college education or college degree or, or higher. And then we go out and we look among all the men in the population that are not married and we say like, okay, this is what women are looking for. Do those men exist? And this is then a structural mismatch. Even if the numbers lined up perfectly, you'd still have the challenge of finding each other. That's a different type of mismatch. That's more like a kind of a frictional mismatch, which is sometimes it's just hard to find the right person, even if they exist. What we're saying is, do they even exist? Like, would there be enough of these guys to go around? And what we find is that there's just not enough men with the characteristics that women are looking for. So can we go a little deeper? Yeah. So what are these characteristics? Mostly about income and education. So there is a real, there's a real lack of men. Let's say lack in terms of there's a lot of women looking to marry someone with a college education and a high income. And when you go look at the population, there's just not enough of those guys to go around. But can we restate what we said at the beginning? It's not women looking for men with a high income, meaning women are attracted to the rich guy. Is their identical self in another, yeah, in another place, has married someone that sure, has yeah, that yeah, yeah. I mean, of- she has reasonable expectations, which is someone just like her is married to that type of person. And so it seems reasonable that she would want to be married to the same person. And, and we're not talking, I think when people think about rich, you're thinking about like super rich. No, we're just talking about guys that, or the group that there's a lot of, there's a lot of guys with an income less than $30,000. And there's just not a lot of demand for that characteristic. So we need to, so I think one thing about mismatches in marriage markets is maybe thinking about how to move men out of that category that women aren't looking for maybe and helping them be more successful either through access to education or training or apprenticeship. Yeah, you make this policy recommendation, which I find very interesting when you say, you know, since I want to go back also to the study itself, but so assuming that the result is there is a lot of, there are many highly educated women who are single who have a hard time because the trend was not that of marrying down in the past was marrying up using terms that I found there, hypo. uh, Yeah, hypergamy. Yeah. Hypergamy is when you marry up. Yeah. Yeah. So women need to marry down. Your suggestion is, well, since these men that are available make $20,000 to $40,000 and, you know, that's not what is demanded, the solution is not so many courses on what marriage is and, you know, how we get there, but it's better jobs. Yeah, that's definitely like probably the easiest solution. I mean, because there's two things going on. One is hypergamy, which you mentioned, which is when you look at couples that are married, the man usually has at least as much education as his wife. Now, that might be preferences of the wife or preference of the husband. I'm not taking a position there. I'm just saying this is what we observe in the data. And then the other thing is that women constitute 60% of the college degrees. So you have this issue where Women are more educated than men, but the marriage market is resulting in matches in which they're either equally educated or or the man is more educated. And this pair of patterns is what's causing a lot of the trouble. Yeah, it doesn't work. And so I'm very glad, you know, that you point out it's not a sex ratio problem. What I would like to say, it's probably, you know, a funny statement now, but we're not suggesting for the students listening, we're not suggesting that you should, as a girl, drop out of school so that your chances to marry well are higher, right? Like, no, go to grad school, go to your PhD. It's still a very good option. But could we say that men should aim a little higher? Yeah, right? for sure. And not being happy, being bachelors, having roommates when they are 42. Okay. But 
could that be related also to Professor Regnero's studies about chipsets and like how when he describes in his books how men are not incentivized as when they're young to study more and to do more because they get what they want from women, right? They can, the hookup culture helps them in this. But it's then when they want to get married, when they realize that that is not enough, that they are not enough. At that point though, it's probably late because you don't go back to grad school when you're 42 or 43. Some do and it's a good, but statistically, that's not. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think most college students are engaged in the sexual culture, not the marriage culture. They're not looking for a spouse, even though while you're in college is probably the very best time to meet someone that's like you, to whom you might have similar interests, similar ambition. And so if you pass up on that opportunity to meet someone that you might be very happy married to, you're never gonna be able to come back to that stage in your life. So I guess what I'd advocate is maybe at least keeping open that option for people saying like, you know, I don't have to get married while I'm in college, but I shouldn't close that door. I shouldn't you know, say that that's not something, or even from a parent's perspective, like if one of my kids found their spouse in college, I'd be happy for them and not be like, oh, you should wait till you're older. And so. And so when you talk about policy and like, you know, aiming at having better jobs or better education, have you thought, have you by any chance in mind, like what these things could look like? Some simple things that could be implemented in states and for helping? Yeah, I don't know. Some of these are so hard to think about through the lens of policy because, I just don't see the government getting involved in dating and courtship and marriage. No, <laughs> I mean, yeah, so, so really for me, it's always a cultural thing, which is I'm super excited. My daughter has gone on dates with, I think, 25 different boys. And I just love, I love that approach to dating, which is this ability to socially interact with lots of different people and figure out who you are and who you like to be with. Like if we could re-enshrine that dating and courtship culture, I think we'd have like, more consent built into relationships. I think we'd have more fun. We'd be better at socially interacting with each other. I just kind of like, I don't know, that was my experience in high school was going on lots of fun dates with a lot of people. I learned a lot about myself. And the neat thing is then when I met my wife, I'd been on dates with 50 different girls. And so I kind of knew pretty quickly that she was a, like a complimentary, like we were a really good match for each other. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the policy question was instead on how do we make better jobs, but we can go there. Sure, yeah, I guess, so that's one where that one can be the government involved. I mean, we should be doing everything we can to make sure that everyone has access to a job that could support a family. I know there's opportunities that people teach people a trade that maybe even by the end of high school or shortly after you could be in a position to actually earn really good money as a plumber or an electrician mm -hmm. or these other trades that- Oh yeah, that when you often... need one, you know, much like that. And so. the thing is then what we might need then is women that would say like, actually, I bet I could be happily married to an electrician even if he doesn't have a college degree. Mm -hmm. So a woman who has a college degree saying, actually, I could have a fantastic relationship with someone even if they haven't gone to college. And- I don't know, it's almost like the like elevation of the dignity of work, yeah. independent of the educational attainment that someone has. It would be interesting to look at the psychological parts of it, right? So what does a man want from a woman? Like, would a man be happy with someone with a higher education? And same way, you know, from the woman's perspective, and we can guess some of the psychology yeah. behind it from our own perspective, but it would be interesting to have someone talk about it. Back to what you were saying before about the culture about dating and courtship. So we do a lot of, I think we do enough here in talking about marriage and trying to create a healthy culture around marriage. But there's one, you know, one question I would have is, would you agree that 
true, it's good to go on 50 dates, and but it's also, even before that, you need to be able to make friends. Sure. Before you answer, just I have the feeling that the dating, especially in the online world, there is a high focus on finding the right date. But how can you have a romantic relationship if you never learned what it means to have a commitment with a friend? Oh, sure. Yeah. When I use dating, I always like the model of friendship-based dating. So friendship-based dating, in that case, then a date with one of my guy friends would look almost like a date with a girl in high school. Basically, it's a time that I spend with another person in which there's no kind of expectation for romance, but that I'm just enjoying you as a friend. And we're going to go spend some time one-on-one, maybe playing tennis, maybe going on a hike, maybe taking some pictures, but there's no expectations. Like that's what's neat about it. It's like with my friends that I grew up with, there was no expectations. Like we just enjoyed being together. And that's what I would love to see the dating culture. So when someone asks you on a date, there's no, there's no commitment up front. It's just like, I want to get to know you as a person. I want to be your friend. I'd enjoy spending some time with you. And If we end up going on other dates in the future, that's great. But if not, then I will have appreciated this time with you as a friend. And the neat thing with those is then when you interact with that person later on in life, you still have that friendship and you'll have that friendship with lots of people. Yeah, I like very much that that's how I grew up. I don't know if this was, you know, normal for everyone in the past, but I really think that that's what the online world cannot give us because the online world is offering you a service that is Taylor, even the day that it would become for friendship, it would create the expectation for friendship, which actually, well, you don't know, you know, maybe we had a great tennis game, but honestly, I don't like talking to you. Like, right. Like it could go in that direction. So mismatches in the marriage market, that was, you know, the article that you wrote. And then we're going to present also at the seminar that you will lead so that women who are single will feel a little less, you know, called out for being picky again, which is probably not the way to describe them. There is actually a lack, you know, there's not enough offer to meet the demand. But back to the study, I wanted to say, what are the, I saw that there are some different results when we talk about minority women, for instance, like the problem is even higher there. Yeah. So how, why? Yeah. So I I mean, I can't speculate too much, but I mean, one thing we have known for a long time is that incarceration can have massive effects on marriage markets. And so that's just that thing that you always have to acknowledge, which is that we've managed to incarcerate a lot of of black men Mm. and cannot ignore the fact that that would have implications for marriage markets. Okay. So anything we can do to help with the criminal justice system could have big effects there. I think also that, you know, just, yeah, so I don't know if I can, yeah, I probably don't want to speculate in that, but that was just one, I guess the whole purpose of the paper was just to point out some of these statistical realities about these mismatches. Now, I've also done some historical work on Hawaii, and that's totally different. You you basically imported mostly men for certain ethnic groups. So you'd have all these Chinese workers or Japanese workers or Filipino workers that were almost entirely men. And there you'd have these crazy sex ratios like eight to one or 10 to one. And so that's kind of like a totally different beast. I think what we were trying to do is ask this question, like, what's your own personal sex ratio? And, and that's really based on like the kind of people you're hoping to marry and how many of them exist. Yes, absolutely. And then another interesting result, I could say it scared me a little, is that age, for instance, oh, sure. matters a lot more for highly educated women then. So what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so th- this actually comes from Dataclism, which is a, a great book using data from OkCupid. Okay. So in OkCupid, this is where you can see what people are looking for because in their profile, they'll indicate the kind of things that they're hoping to be matched on. Okay. And so this is where you can see some of the hypergamy, but you can also see this in terms of age. 
And so sadly, you know, men are often looking for women that are younger than them and sometimes considerably younger than them. And so, you know, some of these age-specific sex ratios can start to really kick in at some point. Wow. And I remember, yeah, that reading is also age matters more if you're highly educated and it matters less if you're less educated. That was another result I found very interesting that okay. if you had a lower level of education, one, an increase in your age meant less because of that ratio, right? Because yeah. of the education of the spouse. Okay. Yeah. As you can tell, I'm not an economist as you are. So whatever, it's an experimental thing. It's not that quick to me. So closing on this study, you mentioned before some of the limitations. What are the limitations of a study like this? Sure. Yeah. So we can only find your synthetic spouse based on the characteristics that are observed in a census. So obviously like religion is important to a lot of people. We can't capture that in this. So some of these mismatches in marriage markets might be even more striking in particular religious groups. And that's something we really can't get at at all. There's obviously personality aspects to the marriage market. We can't touch that at all. And just out of curiosity, and then I will let you go because I know you have to prepare and do a lot of other things. But is this historically, like the number of single people, is it really historically something new based on the records we have? Like, is it a contemporary phenomenon that was never this high? Or maybe for other reasons, there were a lot of single people. I don't know. I mean, I've been doing a lot of work with historical data going all the way back mm -hmm. to 1850. And it is interesting that there have been time periods where you've had a lot of men that are listed as rumors and borders. And so that was kind of like a period of time where we had a lot of single men. Now, it could be that a lot of those men didn't have a farm Hmm. They didn't have a way to provide for a family just yet. But we've been looking at some of the mining communities in the West and the sex ratios there got really kind of out of whack. And sadly, what the result was in many of those communities was the kind of development of the brothel culture rather than the marriage culture. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I always think we always think that the thing we're going through at the moment is unique. Though sometimes when we take a bigger lens at history, we can sometimes find other time periods or, or different places where these same kind of problems have popped up before. Yes, I think I would agree with you. Anyway, I would say that the recommendation we can make after looking at your article, I mean, write your article, which I hope we can link in our episode, and looking at your life too, probably the recommendation is get married young. And if you're a man, go to grad school, if that's what you're thinking. Like we need some of you in that area, right? Like to match with the highly educated girls that are already in PhD courses. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, the other opportunity is that, you know, women, the match goes both ways. And so we don't know if it's that. It could be, I guess what I'd also say, I think like I would love for my college-educated daughter to also marry a college-educated guy. But if she found that electrician that hadn't gone to college, I think after thinking about this article, I maybe would judge him based on his his personality, his dependability, his hard work ethic, and maybe not give so much weight to that educational credentialism. I absolutely agree. Working with a lot of fellows, professors, I should not say this, but it's not that academia equals excellence at all the time. So no problem with marrying down, right? If as long as we define that in a proper way. So thank you very much, Professor Price. This was an amazing, I mean, it was great to read. It's a little dark, uh, <laughs> but... We still have hope, you know, we don't only believe in statistics, we also have hope. Thank you very much, and we hope to have you again on our show soon. Great, thanks.
Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.